Welcome to the EV Ready Podcast, featuring industry leaders and their perspectives on electrification, hosted by EV Ready Energy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the EV Ready Podcast. This is your host, Chris Nyan, and I am grateful to introduce our guest for today, Pat Romano, former CEO of ChargePoint and current ChargePoint advisor. Pat, thanks for joining. Thank you, Chris, for having me. Yeah, totally. I was always kind of looking forward to this one because I always know we have good conversations. And yeah, definitely kind of interested, especially, you know, post, well, not post charge point, but post charge point CEO, kind of like what your take is on the industry and everything like that. So thanks for taking the time. But first question for you is, you know, you've had a few months, you know, I guess officially in charge point anymore. Tell us about what you've been up to, how you're doing, and, you know, what you miss most about, you know, just, I guess, being a charge point every day. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, I can answer the last one first. I, you know, yeah, I was charge point 13 years and I'm still in touch with, you know, a lot of folks there. And I'm, you know, as an advisor, I'm still in the office. I'm not nearly as frequently as I used to be, but I'm still, I'm still engaged with the folks there. And, you know, obviously what you miss aside from, you know, I love the industry, right. Is you miss the the personal interactions with all the great folks. It really, I mean, you were there for a long time. It's a special place. There's really great people. It's the reason I think a lot of people get out of bed in the morning. They get out of bed for two reasons, or they leave companies for two reasons. They're both the same reasons. On the positive side, you got to love the mission and you got to love the people. And you really need to love both of them. And that glues that glues a team together, right? It glues people together. And if either one of those things fall to right, mission or, or team, then you start to imagine a world where you're not doing that anymore. And that never happened to me there. I always loved the team and loved the mission. And that's what I've been supposed about it. You told me about a gift that you received from the team before you left. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So God, they're, they're such, they're just awesome. So I, you know, because the only social media posts for me are races. <laughs> Triathlon, been in the triathlon for ages. And a couple of years ago, I had a charge point custom paint job on my bike. That's not the gift. We'll get to the gift in a second. So, you know, I bleed orange. So I had, you know, the whole paint job on my, my, my triathlon bike. And so the team decided that they would get me a, a custom graphic charge point, kind of like the gear you race in, the suit you race in. It's like a little, it's like a one piece bike kit, you know, looks like bike, bike clothes, but it, it's all one piece. And it is fully charged for me branded, wonderful job by the marketing team there. And they presented that to me, you know, about, you know, a couple of weeks after I left, they had had me back for a surprise party and just really sweet gesture, really awesome. That's really cool. I've seen the bike. The bike's awesome. I'll be looking for the garb on Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hey, I'm doing, so I'm racing in March and that'll be the first time that I'll be out on the course, not only with the charge point bike, but fully branded charge point race kit. So look for the look for the post. That's awesome. Noted. Yep. Noted. So tell us about what's next. Where do you see yourself? What do you want to do? How are you going to spend your time? I think I've said this to you before. I have two irrational fears. I say this to everybody. The first irrational fear has nothing to do with work. It's general anesthetic. If you ask my wife, you know, if I have, you know, need stitches or something like that, or well, stitching, you don't get a general anesthetic. But if I ever needed it, I'd break out cold sweat. The second thing that gives me an equivalent reaction is boredom or the fear boredom. So I'm already engaged with several companies. Um, I haven't figured out what I want to do longer term. I'm interested in a bunch of areas. I'm interested in 
obviously peripherally the industry I came from. I don't think I would do a charging company directly because I'm loyal to ChargePoint, first of all. But second, I've, I've done that for 13 years. But other things in energy, I think, could, could be interesting. Robotics is an interesting field for me. Nuclear is an interesting field for me. There's a lot of interesting things. And a friend of mine actually has a drone company that's in stealth mode right now. Really great applications. It's not what you think with respect to drones. It's something totally different that, that I can't talk much about right now. And what I'm doing is I'm getting involved with things, but I'm not, I'm trying to organically let the next opportunity kind of come, come into focus in my brain as to what I want to do. Fortunate enough that my, you know, my kids are out of the house and, you know, I don't have the pressing need to, you know, make that decision overnight. And I want to just make sure it's impactful. I don't want to do anything with my career that's not impactful. So I want to, I want to figure out what benefits society the most and what areas that can, can I work on on benefit societies the most. And the other thing is I get a lot of excitement of working with, you know, bright people that are really committed to some brand new passion project. I've done zero to something full times in my career. And I have a lot of respect for that. So I'm very busy. My day is very busy right now, oddly, with a lot of diversity right now, a lot of diversity on my plate. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy right now. Awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing your next thing. I know you're not going to do something that doesn't have a purpose. I think like you definitely didn't have to tell me that that was your mentality, but it'll be really interesting to see. No, it's kind of yours too, right? Look at what you're doing. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you have limited time and you want to spend it somewhere that matters. So let's talk about your previous industry for a second. So you know, the past 24 months has been interesting in the EV charting industry. And, you know, for me talking to car dealerships and auto manufacturers, like everybody has their opinion on what consumers think, where the industry is going to go. I know we share the same opinion. You know, we know what's going to happen. It's just a matter of how quickly, but, you know, just in terms of the charging network providers and what we've seen on the stock market in general in the industry, and then the role that, you know, some of the largest companies in the industry or just affiliated with the industry, what their roles are going to be. I'm thinking large energy companies, oil companies, auto manufacturers, large utilities, like what's happening right now? I think I always hear like the, the term, this is the year that there's you know some type of a market correction. Like, What does that mean or not mean to you? It's all a bunch of noise from a lot of people that don't know what the hell we're talking about. And here's the reason. Here's what's not being talked about. So first of all, you've got macroeconomic undulations and you've got early market peaks and valleys as you're basically trying to change. One of the hardest things to change is how people drive. You're trying to change that. And it's the right thing, but it the it takes, first of all, full coverage of all the makes and models that are necessary to basically service everyone's different lifestyle needs. The healthy news market on vehicles, you've got that coupled with the highest interest rates we've seen in decades, which is slowing down any CapEx purchase, cars being the second biggest CapEx purchase, you know, next year house that consumers buy. And despite that, there still is quite healthy growth in EV sales. It's modulated relative to, you know, the go-go years of low interest rates, et cetera, right? Automakers are being, I think, a little bit more reticent, the legacy ones with respect to maintaining profitability. I mean, I frankly think that some of them are probably using it as an excuse because change is really hard when you have an existing business that you're trying to transition and a born electric EV company, I'm not saying they have it easy, they don't have it easy, Okay. They just get a different set of issues. But one of the issues they don't have is they don't have to basically protect the transition. They don't have to protect the transition. It's different. That's a very different. They have a whole bunch of other challenges, but that's not one of them. 
And so it's so noisy. Every article that I read, frankly, I not everyone, but most of them I want to throw them in the trash because the premise is just clickbait in general. But I think there's a couple of fundamental truisms that I think your audience needs to pay attention to. Number one, what you're seeing from a stock market perspective on a lot of the companies attacking charging in different ways. There's asset owners, and I wouldn't get into that in a minute because that's, you know, you asked about the role of the oil company, and that's really an asset ownership model. It's very different than ChargePoint's model. We sell technology. We sell, you know, every charger you see that's from ChargePoint isn't owned by us. We glue it all together in one network, but we're paid to keep that glued onto a network. So it's a quite much more like Airbnb, much less like like a hotel chain. It's almost a perfect analogy. Is Airbnb glues together a lot of properties they don't own into something that a consumer can interact with? Largely what ChargePoint does, largely. There's a wholesale, effectively a, a build your build your own charging service and on a more wholesale basis on ChargePoint, which ChargePoint does as well. But if you look, if you blur your eyes and you look at all this, it comes down to the fact that there's not enough cars out there yet because that's the tan glass ceiling over, over our heads. We're, you know, we're lower percent penetrated or so into the install base. We get 99 to go. And so the companies aren't profitable yet. And when you had a shift, since the capital, where we effectively had zero interest rates forever, and then suddenly it's the highest interest rates we've seen in decades. The invest the public market investors shift from growth to you better be profitable and turning in EPS growth and dividends or we're basically out of here. And so that's what you've seen. So there's no correlation. It's not like the companies are any different than they were in the old world order. It's the evaluators changed on those companies. So you can't look at the stock performance and say, oh, they used to do well, but they're not doing well anymore. The same companies, it's not just ChargePoint, the same set of companies are out there being now measured by a different yardstick. And it's not like a, it's not like you can sit around as a company and say, oh, okay, now I get it. Now public company investors want us to be profitable. So they will throw the switch and it'll be profitable. This is not a time to do that. So where I think it's going is it's a gift. It's a gift to the companies that have the best business models and the best tech. And the reason it's a gift is it's going to accelerate the shakeout. Every industry when it matures gets down to two to three players, right? In a given geography, it gets down to two to three players. And so this is just going to accelerate that whole process. And it's going to teach companies, I think, you know, the best cliche, but it's true. The best companies are built hardest at times. It's teaching companies where value is coming from. It's teaching them how to unlock efficiency that they were pressed to unlock before because there was no focus on growth and not necessarily focusing on efficiency, et cetera. So you've seen that shift. It's a natural pressure. Some won't survive it. And if she will, I think George Wynn's one of them, right? And what you'll have when, when you're on the backside of it is an incredible, an incredible, amazing long-term growth cycle here. This is still, and I've said it many times when I was CEO at ChargePoint, this is the front end of a two-decades growth cycle because it's going to take that long to change out all the cars on both the fleet side and the consumer side. Oh my God, my yeah, you're going to have from this year to next different macroeconomic conditions. I consider a year or two years a very short term. So I think we have to define what short is. Short in my mind is a couple of years. Short in a public company investor's mind is a quarter, right? But for an industry that's barely a percent penetrated and with 99 to go, look at, because look at how close to profitability some of the good companies are that are in the space. So if you can do that, 
the penetration rates that you're talking now, imagine when you're 5, 10, 15% penetrating, you still got 80, 85, 90% of the market to go and you're profitable. And if you look at companies that are lasting enterprises and the number of them out there, look at their historical stock chart from the dawn of them being public. And you'll see if they went public when they weren't profitable, whatever the stock price was, the minute they cross through that line, it shoots through the roof. Regardless of market conditions, the market conditions that we're in now make that much worse. So I actually think the current conditions are a gift. The press is doing what the press does. I mean, I don't want to knock them. They have to sell advertising and they love to generate a, a sensational headline. But the fact of the matter is, is just let it keep running. Is there a market participant that you think is going to try and be one of the final two or three that doesn't exist yet? Well, I mean, I think the way I would evaluate that is a little bit different than the way you pose the question. The question's a good one. Who has the balance sheet to be able to survive through profitability? I think ChargePoint's one for sure, right? I think some of the bigger European oil and gas companies, if you if you take Shell and BP, I think they have religion about participating in this, but they have to participate in it in a narrow way. The narrow way is it's got to be, you know, fast charge serving long haul drivers. I think many of them think that they can get people to use it as primary fuel, but it ain't. So they'll have a role, but we all know where most charging, if you've been in the business or in an EV, where does it happen? You know, 80% or so is happening where you live. And that's going to have to happen in multifamily as well. Where you work is another big place where that happens. Around town, a little bit, and shop and use it opportunistically. You know, you plug in top of opportunistically, it's not a huge percentage there, but it's there and it's got to be there in the ecosystem everywhere because you need that charging coverage for that case where you weren't planning. And then when you go a few times a year, you go on a long trip, that's when that asset ownership model might work. But that really, if you look at liquid fuel, has been the bastion of the convenience store. And the reason is they can combine the business models using fuel as bait. To get you to stop, right? And then they can sell you stuff. And so they can run a very close to break even business on the fuel, high volume, very low gross margin. And they can top up the gross margin with essentially selling you higher gross margin stuff because you're a captive audience. And if you're an EV driver, you're more captive because you're going to be there for 15, 20 minutes, right? And if you're going to be there for 15 or 20 minutes, you're a better customer, but not as high frequency, right? So I think you're going to see the players that normally would exist in fueling and convenience space potentially change because the parking configuration has to change. You know, you need somewhere five, six times as many stalls. That's why if you look at fast charge sites, even with 1% penetration, they have more chargers than charging dispensers than gas pumps would be at a gas station. The reason is you're, you're there a lot longer. So if you're there a lot longer, you're going to have, you're going to have that. And if you're sitting there a lot longer and you need more real estate, then the question is, what are the kinds of things you'd sell someone? Well, it might be different than when you sell someone when they're only there for four minutes stop for gasoline, right? And so that's those are the questions that I have. Is the current model where you potentially own a charger and stick it in the back 40 of your parking lot disconnected from another business without a cross-subsidy model? That seems to be challenging in the long term because the way that gasoline is evolved, which is a very analogous use case in this one use case, only this one use case, is that A, if I can sell you something while you're there, then I can play with the profitability across two domains, the fuel and what I'm selling you, and I can weight it heavily to what I'm selling you using the fuel as bait. If it goes that way in the long term, 
and the parking duration and the real estate has to be different where you put an EV charger. Who are the likely companies that might want to do that? Food service, light reach, lots of things. Anything you would do for 20 to 30 minutes. Talk to me about NACS. So this means a lot of things to many people. Some people just think it's about a plug. Some people think something bigger is going on. And then I think a lot of people kind of tie, and I know this is a separate answer, but this would be the second question back to Tesla's fast charging network and the data component of it. What you know, what data is Tesla getting? So the question is, is Next just about the plug and the ease of use? Is it something bigger than that? And the second question is around Tesla's network and the communication of data between driver and Tesla. Is that a risk for auto manufacturers? How should people think about those things? Yeah, I don't understand. I mean, from a business perspective, I don't understand why any auto manufacturer would let their competitor, and I'm nothing to Tesla, I don't know, right? But I mean, they sort of handed it to them. They're basically like, hey, now we've endorsed a connector that wasn't a stand. It was a, it was a proprietary connector. We're going to flip to that and you can use this other car company's app. It's tough. And it doesn't sound like, you know, that doesn't sound like a good decision to make if I were a legacy car company. And so now you see Iono was formed, right? So I think, you know, maybe the strategy there is, hey, look, you know, it's, we'll dive into that down in the long term, but I don't know. The, the, the whole thing's a mess. I think. There really should have been, this is the one place, I'm not a big regulatory fan, but this is the one place where you've got it right, is someone steps in and says, this is too much incredible. You're talking about fuel here. You're all on the same goddamn connector. Just pick. Just pick. Because they don't do anything different. This is the the thing that, you know, the the press headlines. If I see one more headline that says, Tesla has won the charging wars because the last car company, I forget who it was, to sign up for an axe. And I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. That's a connector. They changed connector types. In hand anything to anybody. They changed connector types and it's something that they should have all settled on a long time ago. I don't really care which one was picked. We never did it at charge point because we're tail not dog in that equation, right? We get wagged by the dog that is the auto companies out there. They should have been forced to pick one a long time ago because that and it should have started even in the days of this whole Chatamo and CCS. That should have been put to bed. That should that was a mess. And allowing NACs to exist separately, three different connector types in the U.S. has forced basically cable management nightmares on chargers where you could have a much cleaner situation and just have one cable type. Because it doesn't work well through adapters. It works okay on AC charging, but it doesn't work well. It's still it's funky for AC charging, but it certainly doesn't work for DC charging. At high seats, you, you don't want to be going through an adapter where you can't guarantee that the pins are cool. So then you don't want to have to back off on charging speeds as things get faster and faster in the future. So we've allowed it to perpetuate and they all do. Uh, you can't, if you look at Chatham, CCS, NAC, you could argue about the shape, right? Now you're talking about plastic, right? And so you're arguing about shape. I'll do exactly the same thing. It's not like, oh my God, look at the awesomeness of this one connector. It doesn't do anything different than any others other than I like the way this one feels in my hand better than this one. And not saying that the ergonomics don't matter, but all I'm saying is functionality wise, it's changed nothing. It's changed absolutely nothing. And, you know, it should have been forced in the very early days. So we didn't have this reconciliation now, you know, which is, I think, causing unnecessary consumer problems because consumers need it. So, right. So that's. Yeah. 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 You know, I always get this question, like everybody wants to become a feeling convenience operator Mm. in the EV space. They want to own and operate fast chargers. Sometimes, you know, get the request to build a payback model to own and operate level two chargers selling electrons. 
Can you talk about some of the largest companies that are out there that own assets, where they came from, and and what your opinion is on selling electrons across the United States? Wow. It's a lot in the pack. <laughs> How long have you got? Let's see. We can shoot it on that. So let's 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 zoom back a little bit. There are certain so electricity as fuel is incredibly expensive. And I want to use an analogy. In the early days of Wi-Fi, internet access basically, wirelessly. A million companies went out, like, you know, the Boingos of the world and companies like that. If you remember that name from back in the day. I don't. I'm too young. Yeah, company, because you couldn't make that name up. Yeah. And so imagine that in the early days of the internet, that people were like, you know, people are going to buy subscriptions for public access to Wi-Fi. And then what happened is businesses said, oh, wait a minute. I could just, yeah, it cost me a little bit more, but I'll just like, I'll put a few more access points. I'll just give this away because it'll make my coffee shop, my retail store, my whatever, a little nicer. And it really doesn't cost that much more incrementally to be able to do that. Well, guess what? If you want to give fuel to your employees, it costs about as much as coffee, giving them coffee. I'm not kidding, right? It costs, and, and that's like amortizing the O and M of the charger, the energy, you know, network piece to charge point, all that sort of stuff, you know, four bucks a day which is about what you pay for coffee. But believe it or not, that's what you're spending on coffee for your employees. If you're out there, your facilities department's probably, if, if they have decent coffee, and I'm not talking custom barista making you fancy drinks and stuff, and the, you know, the one button coffee makers that make decent stuff, that's about four bucks a day. So at about four bucks a day, you can give an employee a ton of their fuel for nothing. Kind of like, it's cheap enough, so why not? Because the on the employee benefit basis, it's an easy one. Now, not all employers are going to do that. Okay, but some will. And some will limit it, and, but it'll still be there, right? So that's some leakage that's going in that direction. And that's the way it should be, is that some businesses are going to do that. You're going to have other a parking operator may decide, hey, you know, their garages are not that full right now because parking operations are under a little bit of pressure. So now, could you imagine, hey, if you park here, you'll get the first two hours of charging for free. I made that. People, marketers will come up with many different ways of doing that. Why am I going there? It's so inexpensive that you have to change the way you think about electricity as fuel. And what that does is it narrows the payback equation for owning a charger when so many people could give it away where you have so much optionality as to acquiring it from home or whatever, that businesses just each picking up their little piece and filling in the gaps. What it leaves is it leaves the long haul fuel market. The thing that has not, I think, been fully based by the industries, there still is a belief by some folks out there that if they build charging hubs, that you will forego charging at home or charging in your apartment for that. And what I say is that's too big a pain in the butt to contend with for the average mid-market consumer. So they'll just wait. And we don't need that consumer just yet because there's enough consumers in the front end of the adoption curve that have plenty of access to home charging and things like that. Where by the time we need that piece of the market to convert, the way street side infrastructure you're already seeing programs like that, you see in multifamily programs, et cetera. So it's gonna corner the convenience, the fueling and convenience market to the long haul use case, which is ten percent of the fuel volumetrically, not ten percent of the sessions, by the way, ten percent of the fuel, not ten percent of the visit. So you're taking a huge energy gasoline market. You're cutting the revenue down by the ratio of driving on gasoline to driving on electricity. That's a big ratio, four or five X, cheaper. Boom. Okay. And now you're saying, oh, now only 10% is what you're going to get 
if you build a fast charge site, I'm not talking against building a fast charge site because I think we need them. We're at the front end of this curve and we're going to need the long haul fast charge sites. But the ones that are going to win are the businesses that are going to serve long haul drivers that have been serving long haul drivers, right? And the new ones that are going to serve people that are going to be there for 20 minutes or so. And where it goes in terms of making money and owning chargers and selling stuff is the multifamily case is actually at scale. It's actually a pretty good case. The problem is you need a lot of subscribers. You need a lot of consumers that are driving EVs in an apartment to justify the cost of doing the work at an apartment complex. But once you start to come up above the hurdle rates there of having enough EVs in the parking lot to justify that, then serving that market as an asset is, I think, going to be a, a good one. As project companies that do that stuff have headline very low return expectations because they're project investors, but that's <laughs> but that's okay. It fits their model. You'll see the same with street side and the city. Many cities and towns have outsourced a lot of their infrastructure, parking meters included. So they, you know, having street side programs associated with permit parking zones for residents, you're going to see that as well. And that, because you have more guaranteed utilization or predictable utilization, those things can be priced such that they're, you know, the businesses work as well. You're in the days of an early market. In an early market, the data you're gathering is too sparse to have it show. It, it's it, You can't use it to evaluate stuff right now. It's going to change super fast, right? You get to 10, 15, 20% EV penetration and, you know, the first 1% took us, you know, 13 years <laughs> for me, right? And, you know, the next 13 years, it's not going to be one more percent. It's going to be, you know, a lot, right? A lot of, a lot of the insult, a good percentage of the insult base will have converted. So you're going to be in the eye of the tornado, I think, as we get through some of this macroeconomic hurdle. And we see more makes and models coming out. And we see a healthy used market on EVs, right? And lower cost new EVs because they have the potential of actually being cheaper on a sticker price basis. Than the equivalent other garages, you see it's a function of the volume not being high enough. Once that's all sorted out, I mean, a lot of places where you can own AC or DC assets and make money. But the big diffuse, I want it in front of my, you know, barbershop or I want it in front of my, you know, picket mom and pop, you know, grocery store or something like that. That's just going to be the big diffuse fill of people treating it as if it were free Wi Fi. That's really the amazing part. It's going to be an all of the above list and it's all going to trigger at different percent penetrations into the install base. So that's also going to vary geographically. California with much higher penetration in certain areas than other states. So it may happen in multifamily in New York and California and parts of Florida and parts of Texas before it happens in multifamily in some other states that don't have the EV penetration that the ones that I just mentioned do. So it's again, it's a complicated patchwork, but that's it's a head fait. Fast forward the tape, judge business models, not against the NAP, judge business models against in 10 years with the EV penetration and the, even if you're conservative about it, the likely cost of an EV, the likely number percentage in every apartment and condominium and city and things like that. What percentage of EVs are going to be there and then judge it against, could you make a business? serving the charging means of that, I think the answer is never yes. Now, I hear a lot in the automotive space right now, well, not just the automotive space, here from consumers, the challenge of depreciation of electric cars and how that's impacting the market. What's your take? Oh, my take. I, I've been preaching this from, I said, you know, from the beginning of the company, when no one knows who the hell your company is, right? In charge point, this is like, you know, talking like eight years ago. You have to be brief and evocative when you're in like an industry forum or meeting with the press or 
no one hears anything. So here's what I used to say. And it's still true today. I actually think that the depreciation situation in an early market's a complete head fake. You are going to see an, a residual value squeeze very soon, actually, now, very soon to now, on gasoline cars when people start saying, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to unload this thing when I, you know, at the end of its life, I better early out it or I better not buy another one. You're going to see leasing companies basically look at that and say, hey, I don't know what the residual value in that gas car is going to be. So I'm going to, I'm, not, I'm going to be very conservative with it. So the lease cost is going to go up, right? Now, right now, what you're seeing is a head fake. You're seeing rapid price war and price cuts because the industry has normalized. So you're seeing all this change. And so where you had a very stable gas car industry price-wise, the residual values were stable. But you're seeing, you know, price wars where people are fighting for market share in the early days, which is, yeah, that's what people do, right? In in companies, that's what companies do in the early days of the market. It's causing this buffeting, which is causing a residual value challenge, which is complete head fake. Because once that normalizes, the real residual value problem is in the gas car. The other thing that I used to always say is you're not going to have range anxiety for too much longer. You're going to have gas anxiety. And the reason you're going to have gas anxiety is... Gas stations are going to start to fall below their fixed costs because it doesn't, it's not linear. It's not like a gas station has half the revenue, but still survives when it has half the visits. If you're only making 12% pre-tax profit on business, which is yeah, 12, 15% pre-tax profit running the mill business, right? If you lose, you still have the same fixed costs, but you lose 30% of your visits and there already have been something for Right, you see how gas stations deforested in like New York City trying to get gas. So now, now you see the visits go away. So the gas stations just start going away precipitously. So now, what used to be convenient? Oh, hey, I'm going to stop for my coffee on my way to work at the coffee shop that I like. And oh, by the way, there's a gas station right across the street, and that's two blocks before the highway entrance on my way to work. Well, now that gas station that was two blocks before the highway entrance on your way from the coffee shop to the highway entrance, they ain't there anymore. So now where's the gas station? I don't know. It's four miles in the other direction. So now rush hour, you have to go in the wrong direction because there ain't enough. You get, they ain't on every corner anymore. And so now you're starting to be like, this is a pain in the butt. I can't, you know, have a tank of gas because it's regulated at my house. And now I got to drive like all over God's creation to basically figure out how to fuel my vehicle. This is a nightmare. That's what we're going to face. In fact, another prediction I used to always say is you're going to see governments or oil companies having to subsidize or change the compensation structure for gas stations so that they can survive on lower visits because you're going to have a real retail outlet problem because the oil companies don't own that retail space. They've divested of that. They've been run by profit optimizers. And the profit optimizers of the retail side is not what I want to be part of. So they have divorced themselves mostly, not completely, but mostly of the retail side of that business. When you see Exxon, BP on a banner. That is not most of the time a station that's corporately owned by that oil company. That is a gas station group. It's a business. It can be a mom and pop or it can be a, a small regional or even bigger in some cases, but it's rarer that own three, four, 10, 15, 100 gas stations under franchise. So now when that vaporizes, the oil company, you know, when those guys start suffering, you lose your outlet, you lose your channel for your product, and you still got 70% market share in the install base. So let's pretend it's a world that starts happening when things are 20, 30% penetrated, 
you got 70, 80% of your cars that are still out there that are buying stuff for you, but you don't have outlets for them anymore. So you're accelerating the change to EV. So it's going to be a really interesting dialogue. I can't wait for that dialogue because it, you can set your watch by it. It's so obvious that it's going to happen, but it's not what's being talked about now. It's being talked about as the opposite. It's being talked about now as, oh, there's range anxiety. And he's, well, really? It depends what most uses there is. That feels so far away, but makes all the sense in the world. So when you say 20 to 30% market share, what year is that? So it's capped by the following, you can do very basic math, 14 to 17 million, we're talking US here, similar numbers in Europe, 14 to 17 million cars is what auto OEMs combine sell a year. And there's 280 million cars and light duty trucks on US roads. Divide, almost 19 years. That says if 100% of cars sold tomorrow, were electric, it still takes the better part of two decades to change out all the vehicles. Now, I think at the end, it goes a little faster because you get the residuality squeeze that we talked about. So people start early outing vehicles, especially in fleet on our state, early on that stuff. But you've got production capacity in the midst and auto OEMs aren't going to put in four times their production capacity only five years later to have lots of spare capacity that they can't amortize. So they'll let prices come up. And so where am I going with this? If you look at that 17 million as about 5% change rate, not quite, right? You know, in that rate, single digit change rate a year for if you could get up up the curve and you're nowhere near up the curve, maybe you're, you know, approaching 20% some geographies, Norway, you're way up the curve, right? In 80% or so of new car sales or maybe even more now, but let's just take, you know, US and Europe. It's going to take a while to get to that 30% level. But when it gets to that 30% level, it 20, 30, 40%, it starts to, the back end of that is starting to really accelerate. And then you got this sticky residual at the tail end. So it's like the classic S adoption curve. It's really shallow initially, skyrockets. Then it levels off in the last 10 or 15% take forever to get rid of because they have special purpose needs and they're not biting these. So you're, you know, you're probably the better part of, you know, you know, you're into the back of the next decade, somewhere between year five and year 10, right? Starting from now where you're at that percent penetration that we talked about, unless something really amazing happens with respect to production capacity and pricing. But the bug is that the effects of a lot of the things that I've been talking about start showing up at, at about those penetration rates and you'll see it in the headlines. So the dialogue is going to change. Is the dialogue going to change this year? Probably not. It's it's too much fun for some people, I don't know why, to basically promote misinformation or, said differently, be short-sighted with respect to how they talk about a trend that is a mega trend that's going to take two decades to work itself out, right? So, you know, if you want to talk about what's going to happen in the next three quarters, well, yeah, they're probably right. There's a little exaggeration, but they're probably right. Do you want to talk about what's going to happen in the next three years? Well, and they're probably not right. You want to talk about what's going to happen in the next six years? Definitely not. Now you're starting to get into the range of what I'm talking about. And it's almost math. It's almost irrefutable, right? It's not going to go hydrogen. There's a whole bunch of reasons why. I mean, we get to it on another podcast. It's plug-in hybrids are the dumbest thing. I, I keep saying, well, maybe it's going to all go plug-in hybrid. Okay, that's the worst of both worlds. Now I got the maintenance profile of a gas car with too small a battery and I'm an EV. Okay, who thinks that's a good idea? It's interesting how that is getting pushed right now in the automotive space. Like a lot of people are saying, yeah, like we're going to go electric, but we're going to have some type of a gas component to our vehicles. And the auto manufacturers are already making this decision. 
And I go back to, uh, I don't know if you've seen the BlackBerry movie, but when the guy that owns Resource in Motion and he sees Steve Jobs showing the, the iPhone with the touchscreen, he says, why would anybody not want to keep physical keyboard? <laughs> oh, yeah. So the, the the thing I quote all the time about not, and I like Walt Osberg, so I'm not, I'm hopefully not offending him if he ever hears this. So Walt Osberg wrote an article about the, on the introduction of the iPhone is, you know, I, I don't know if essentially, I don't know if I could give up my little chick of keyboard. And I think what everyone missed in the early days, a lot of really smart people missed this, is the Apple's vision was the internet in your pocket and typing on, typing on an email was an application in that environment, but not the whole environment. So it wasn't about texting and emailing. It was about the internet in your pocket and everything you can do with reformulating the use cases for apps on the small screen, of which one of those apps was email. Now, if you look at it where you flipped cart and horse there, if you flip a cart and horse, you might design it differently. And that's what happened, right? So we're in exactly the same situation here. You've got people pattern matching and gas on you. They're desperately pattern like, where's all the charging stations? Well, okay, they... You're not feeling in the same places, so you don't need as many. But where's, if we want to fix the climate, but you still set 15 million cars a year, that's 20 years. But we need it to go faster. Look, no one's more climate sensitive than me. That's a big passion of mine, but we should have started it earlier. We could have, right? But we didn't. And so can't make it go any faster. You make it go a little faster, but you can't, you can't say, okay, well, in five years, we've solved it. No, that's, that's not practical. Well, you're moving all this stuff. So what you've got here is exactly that analogy, that exactly that, why would anyone want this? And so now I think why automakers like it, and I think why dealers like it, is it has exactly the same maintenance profile. It has exactly the same spare parts profile. Not exactly, because the electric engine may be some of the where takes some of the wear pressure off the gasoline engine. It's more of the same, and more of the same kicks the can down the road a little bit more. But from a technology perspective, Dumbest idea, well, not the dumbest idea, but one of the dumbest ideas I've ever seen is to go backwards and basically have a tweener where it's not good at anything. It's not a good ED and it's not a good gas car. It's not good at anything. Yep, we're aligned on that one. So, question for you Tesla, they're an incredible software company. People think of them as a charging company, but they're not like a commercial sales charging company, or at least they haven't been in the past. Obviously, they've been delving in it recently. Why doesn't Tesla get into the EV charging commercial sales space? Well, I think they have in some cases, but not, I mean, they're coming from an environment where it was a proprietary environment where most of the software environment and the experience was done between mostly in the car and in their mobile app. And the charger was, you know, kind of coming along for the ride there just because it was a closed system. Because again, as you're wrong, if you control all the inputs, you'd minimize where you put complexity. And if you're, if you're a charging company and you have to charge every car, I deal with every car company's own vision of how they want to bring software environment to their customers you know, to do something more along the lines of what ChargePoint did, right? And most car companies out there now, you have engaged with ChargePoint many for APIs direct into the back end to power their in-dash navigation system and mobile app, in fact. And it take a long time to get those rolled out. Or so he's been still modeling it, but they're fully rolled out with that. And others are, you've seen the announcements. I think it's actually one of the things in ChargePoint that frustrated me the most with the outside world as we used to make these announcements and no one quite grokked it that, you know, someone is on is integrated with a charge point API for the in-dash experience for their payment, finding the chargers, right? Attribute values on the chargers, reservation capability, 
right? Mobile app, how their mobile apps basically deal with charging under the covers. There's a parallel charge point account in that environment that's set up that powers the whole thing. And your car and your mobile app have the ability, if they use it, to understand if you're, if you've got access control, say at work or at a hotel or whatever, where it's not legal to use it unless you're part of some group. Well, ChargePoint has all the mechanisms for that. So it's not a vending machine for electrons. It's got a lot of optionality and controlled by the business. That's all fully available now in the in-dash system and the mobile apps, right? Or technology, it's fully available for the car companies to do it as they see fit. And that's really awesome. Tesla hasn't had to do that. And why haven't they had to do that? Because they've only been dealing with their own stuff. They didn't do anything. They've just only been dealing with their own stuff. So now if they want to get into that, they have to figure they have to figure that out. Now, why? I have a theory, and it's a theory. I'm not proving this by talking to anyone at Tesla. But if your vision is that in the long term, it's not really a car company, it's a robot taxi company because and there's probably a messy middle in there where, you know, I might own the car but consign it into into while I'm working into a robot taxi network, you know, just lots of in-betweens. But if that's your vision and the car is going to be out doing its own thing. And, you know, Elon's a long-term thinker, right? He doesn't care about it doesn't happen next year. He doesn't care if it doesn't happen two years from now. But he's thinking about, does it happen over the next 10, 15, 20 years? Well, then that's what I'm shooting for, right? Well, if that's what you're shooting for, then when that thing's out on its own, it might be convenient if you're building a business around rideshare to control something will charge it, right? And so it may be strategic for reasons that are not, I love the charging business. I do love it. I personally do. And I think there's a lot of good stuff in the charging business, but it's serving all the auto OEMs in a generic way. So you can create a great user experience across all the auto OEMs is what charging needs to be. It needs to be for all drivers, all the time, consistent using experience, no bias to anyone and auto manufacturer with the full ability for each auto manufacturer to differentiate, use the software and APIs, anything they want to do to differentiate their user experience so they can convince you to buy their car versus someone else. That's what a charging company needs to do. If you're a tech, on the technology, not the asset side, if you're on the technology side of charging, that's what ChargePay has to do. If you think the world is a robo-taxi world in the, in the long term, and that all of this is one big head fake, and the existing auto manufacturers that are out there don't see it, and they're under-investing in autonomous, and in 10, 15, 20 years, they don't exist because we're not buying as many cars as we used to. We're couldn't you're either buying and consigning into a robo taxi fleet or not even owning and letting an infrastructure fund own the fleet that's consigned in on the platform. Oh my God. Then you would say to yourself, well, I better have a strategic toe on And that might be a component in the thinking. And it might be. It's really interesting. Do you think Tesla's technology for self-driving is the winning technology? So I'll tell you what I agree with. I agree with the fact that to train an AI to be able to drive in all circumstances, you need an awful lot of training data. And I think that's the reason every car, whether you buy it or not, comes with that FSD computer. Because every car that they've sold is a probe. It's basically generating training data because it can come, it can be playing, driving. It. it can be sitting there saying, I'm driving around, pretending I'm driving, but the driver's actually in control. Wait a minute. I don't agree with what the driver just did. Let me send that to Tesla. Driver just slammed on the brakes. I didn't think driver needed to slam on the brakes. What did the driver know that I did? Maybe the drivers did something wrong, but that's how you build a train. I'm, I'm dumbing it down, but that's generally how you build a training database. You need a lot of that. It's not 10 cars on the road, fancily outfitted with 
stuff. You're not going to get enough training data. You get millions of cars out there, all of the FSD computer in there, right? All pretending they're driving, all feeding the comparison between what the driver's doing and what the car would have done if it were driving back into a training computer, giant training network. Oh my God, you get a big advantage. Okay. That's one advantage. The second advantage that I agree with is that I can prove to you mathematically that you can do it with all cams. And the reason is I'm sitting here today, everyone thinks these two eyes, well, I must be two cameras. Well, no, that's actually, I don't have, unless I'm, you know, lizards can, you know, actually move their eyes independently. So I guess it's two cameras and we're lizards, but we're not lizards. The two are for me to get depth. And that only works, by the way, when you're about 18, 20 feet away. Beyond that, I, I don't, I can use up my brain, uses other cues here, says dude, for depth. So one camera, that camera's on a swivel that doesn't go 360. My neck, last I checked, was not like an owl. I can't get it all the way around. So now, and I can't move my neck fast enough. Now I do have side view mirrors, but that still gives me blind spots. So I still don't have 360, right? I got one cam on a limited swivel with a couple of mirrors. And what we have is the ability to use an AI in all weather condition or a, a natural intelligence, actually, it's not an AI, it's an Anna, I guess, with, with human. And we can drive a car. Now, why are we so good at driving a car? Because driving a car is not that hard. What's hard is understanding all the different things in the environment that we see and anticipate. So when someone approaches a crosswalk, I could see it and anticipate it. And I say, oh, that person looks distracted. So you got to teach an AI all of those situations. It's really the hard part is the AI learning about the world we live in, not the piloting of a vehicle. The piloting of a vehicle is a very straightforward thing to teach an AI how to do. It's how I interpret orange cones in a construction site with a person with one of those little stop signs that flips around, you know, when they're trying to flow control when they close one lane and they're not looking at me. They got their back turned to me and they don't see me and it's raining and it's dark, Right. And so it's those situations that make this so hard. And so I think the camera approach is in the long term, we're the proof that that's possible. Like humans are the proof that that's possible. And you need an awful lot of data and they've got access to an awful lot of data. Now, are they the only people with that? No, but it's a small club. It's a small club. It's not a big club. It's so interesting because obviously it's probably the most contended topic around EV that, you know, I know my family doesn't support self-driving, but I've had an electric car since 2015 and the software updates just keep making it better and better. There was a location in Maine where my more or less would start swiveling back and forth and then it would veer off the road and it doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually have an example literally making a left into my neighborhood, which has it tree in the middle and you have to kind of go around the tree to get to the right side of the road to be driving on. And I've had an experience with my Tesla. My wife has an Ionic 6. It's lane keeping. It's actually quite good. It doesn't have the same full self-driving turned on yet anyway that my, my Tesla has. But with my Tesla in particular, there was one, it used to never make that left. It used to try to go down the wrong side because it couldn't see around the tree. And now it's figured out, it, well, a while ago, it would like pause for a minute and then it would go and, and suddenly it started doing the right thing, but in a not smooth way. And then it went backwards and started making the mistake again. So much like how AIs learn is, you know, you don't quite, it, it's not always two steps forward. It might be 10 steps forward and one step back in some other areas because the training data reinforces some things then negatively and positively and some things change. So it actually went backwards and now it's way better. And now it handles that situation 
better than I've ever seen him handle that situation. But he took a step back for a while. And I don't think they went backwards on, on their algorithm. I think what, I, I mean, it's not really an algorithm, it's an AI. I don't think they went backwards on the machine learning system. I think it's an artifact of how machine learning systems evolve, which I think is what I'll end with this. I actually think it's what makes it very challenging regulatory wise. You can't ask Tesla or anyone else that's not rules based or rules structured with an AI underneath, but that's in a tight rules framework. If it's truly a machine learning system, you cannot say, what will it do in this exact situation? Oh, I don't know exactly what it's going to do. I remember, let's try. (laughs) I mean, that's the answer, right? Well, let's try it and see what it does. Because it's not like you can go inspect code, right? It, it's it's a giant neural net, right? And so it's not like you can go and inspect it. So, so what's going to have to happen, I think, is the equivalent of a driving test. You basically put the machine learning system, much like a 16-year-old, <laughs> through a driving test because the manufacturer actually can't say for certain. Like, And then as, they, as it keeps learning, well, you can't say for certain that it hasn't changed the way that it changes lanes. It might improve the way it changes lanes in most scenarios and not improve it in others. And so as it evolves, you don't quite know exactly how it's evolved because it's evolving like sort of like our, or not sort of exactly like how our, how we learn in a more limited capacity because we have much bigger neural nets in our brains, but that's, that's what it's doing. So it's the regulatory challenges are, it's not rules-based, so it's not deterministic. So the creators of it can't say, well, I know exactly what it's going to do. Right. Like you saw the Sora demo, the open AI guys that generate the, yeah. you know, saw the Sora demo. Yeah. You couldn't ask the open AI guys. So when I feed in this prompt, what's it going to do? Well, it would say, well, let's feed in the prompt and see. <laughs> you got to generally do what your prompt's silly. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure for some people, you're getting them excited for the future. And for a few other people, you're scaring them too. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think I, I'm an optimist. I think we'll figure out how to, I think we'll figure the humans are good at solving these problems. We'll figure it Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time and doing this. This was awesome. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris.